Good afternoon and welcome to the Notes from Michael White podcast, episode number four on February 15th. Uh, joining me today is Mr. Josh Wagman. <clears throat> he's a senior solutions engineer with Veeam and he's, uh, in, uh, I would say, graciously offered to help me co-host. Uh, as, as you know, most, uh, most people know that Michael White uh, is uh, dealing with the effects of uh, ALS, so he'll be joining us um, I would say very infrequently due to, you know, the way he feels, but uh, we look forward to having him join the program whenever he can. And uh, really, uh, Josh, do you want to spend a couple of minutes introducing yourself and we'll uh, go from there? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for reaching out and uh, including me in the, uh, in the podcast. It's, uh, I've listened to uh, the first three episodes and, and found it uh, a nice listen and, and very informative and, so a little bit about my background. I've been in technology now for going on 20 years, and I think I've I've known you since uh, basically day one, <laughs> which is which is kind of funny. Uh, but, I, I, I I remember interviewing you for a summer internship back in our <laughs> in our uh, small oil and gas days. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, we've kept in uh, pretty solid contact since, and actually, I was. Uh, that's the same job that uh, I think we both were introduced to uh, Michael, uh, coincidentally, um, him being in as a consultant we were using. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of a background as a generalist, uh, server storage, data, basically anything that uh, goes into the data center until it hit the network. And uh, last few years being at Veeam, I've specialized in kind of uh, business continuity, data uh, data protection, disaster recovery, so anything BCDR related, um, kind of uh, focusing on that lately. So um, looking forward to being involved and then, uh, yeah. Excellent. Well, one of the things I noticed uh, in the last uh, couple of uh, newsletters is there is a, a fundraiser that you're involved in with uh, with um, some lab equipment as well. Do you want to talk about your ALS fundraiser uh, with your with your old lab equipment? Yeah, absolutely. So, knowing Michael for quite a long time and um, him being a, such a positive. Uh, kind of person in the technical community, helping people out with his, with his notes and, and just generally uh, offering assistance when needed, especially like uh, coworkers or someone who just needs advice for something technical. Uh, he's always been there uh, for me and, and for a number of people in the community. So um, what we wanted to do is, is try to figure out a way we could help Michael out with his battle with ALS and uh, so what we decided to do, I recently updated my home lab. Um, and so that left a bunch of equipment that needed to find a new home and still does. Uh, but uh, we thought we could put it to good use. So instead of just selling it or giving it away, what we figured is we, we would give it away. And we've got a number of people that are kind of adding to the equipment list, but for a donation. So if you want a piece of lab equipment, like a server, switch, uh, firewall, or anything along those lines, all we ask is that you make a donation to ALS in Michael's name. And uh, basically, then it's it's local pickup only, but uh, you can come pick up the, the gear you're after. So it's kind of a gear for good uh, type campaign where we try to 
turn uh, old lab gear into into something positive. That's a that's a great uh, great way to give back as well to the community. For for those of you who have, have been running home labs for a while, uh, I know back in the day mine consisted of more of enterprise equipment and and uh, i've gravitated now towards uh nux and uh, you know a small synology nab uh, nas is that kind of what you're running today as well yeah so i, I still do have an enterprise storage array but i uh, won't be getting rid of that anytime soon due to the fact that uh, there's some pretty cool veeam integration with it but uh what i've done is taken all of the server hardware and it's Decently, uh, decently new as far as uh, um, I guess capability goes and, and functionality with different platforms like VMware. And I, I've translated that into NUX as well. So I've, I've gone down the Intel NUX loophole or I guess rabbit hole um, and built out a NUX 10 lab, uh, all running Thunderbolt 10 gig uh, SFP plus ports um really almost actually uh, almost as good a performance but uh what i do understand and, and part of this initiative is not just to to help michael with the battle with als but also it can be quite cost prohibitive to get into home lab and what we want to do is what i want to do is be able to like you said give back and make sure someone who doesn't necessarily have uh, the, the startup capital to, to build out that home lab, give them a chance to, to acquire something at a, a very reasonable or, or almost no cost uh, to be able to start up and play. Because we all know being in technology, that home lab is actually where you do the most of your learning. So a quick question for you, from a VMware perspective, are you getting your licenses uh, through uh, the VMUG? Is that how you get your licenses today? Yeah, I, uh, I signed up for VMUG Advantage, and that's provided me all of my uh, virtualization licensing. Uh, so I've got uh, a few hosts in the lab that are all fully licensed, uh, got the VCSA running and uh, looking to expand that uh, very shortly into uh, some of the other licensing available through VMUG and I believe like Tanzu and, and different things like that. So uh, I, I'm going to be starting to get into containerization and and uh, doing some research on that and uh, looking to leverage the VMware platform quite heavily there. Funny you should mention uh, Tanzu. I just uh, was involved, uh, as many people know, I'm, a, I'm involved in the hands-on lab uh, program at VMware, and we just released a new version of our uh, vSphere with Tanzu Lab, which is HOL-2113-SDC. Uh, for those of you who are playing the home game, you can uh, go to labs.hol.vmware.com and take that particular lab anytime. And basically, you can spin up your own personalized uh, experience with uh, Tanzu and uh, Kubernetes running on vSphere 7 uh, update 1. Uh, is is basically that, and and we're doing it all without any NSX uh, capabilities. Where the first version of that lab had a full NSX uh, T integration, we took that out, and we actually are using HA proxy and uh, distributed virtual switches to provide all the networking backend for Kubernetes in this. So if you're interested in dipping your toe in the water on Kubernetes and how you can run it with Tanzu and, and with VMware, obviously uh, the the hands-on lab is a great place to go if you don't want to put that into your home lab. Although I would highly encourage if you do have a home lab, try Tanzu out in your home lab. It's uh, well worth the experience. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And that's probably where I am going to 
start out down that path. Uh, I, I'm going to experiment with a few different implementations of, of Kubernetes, uh, including uh, probably that hands-on lab, uh, the Tanzu deployment as well, and then basically running uh, within Linux uh, itself, kind of three different types of configurations. Uh, well, I guess two real, really different types of configurations and, and just kind of map out the differences and, and really explore the platform. I think obviously the last few years we've been, we've been seeing a lot of adoption of, of cloud uh, where it was kind of a, a buzzword for a couple of years before. And now we're, we're hitting that, I think space where cloud native is becoming more of a focus. And, and as we see that cloud native shift, we're seeing a lot of adoption of containers and it's, it's only just beginning, but I think it's going to be quite accelerated, especially with all of these uh, remote working conditions and, and taking a different viewpoint of, of where data centers are these days. Obviously, uh, I'm not a full Tanzu expert, but uh, you know I, I have lots of friends who are, and we'll at some point probably have one or two of them on the show to discuss uh, probably Tanzu in, in depth, because uh, there's lots more to Tanzu than just Tanzu with vSphere. We, we also have the capability of uh, a control plane, Tanzu Mission Control, and a whole bunch of other um, offerings from our acquisitions from a VMware perspective from Heptio. Uh, who basically were, was a company that contained two of the Kubernetes founders, uh, one of whom is still involved with VMware and very heavily uh, guiding our Tanzu journey, as well as uh, as well as other offerings on how we can integrate with other cloud providers and, and other Kubernetes instances. So it's uh, it's really exciting. Uh, I really think that's where the puck's heading from an application development perspective and it's good to see that not only you know um you know vmware supporting it but the greater community really is hopping on board and i know veeam is doing a lot about gee you have all these containers how are you backing them up how are you backing the configs up how are you backing the infrastructure up all that it really comes into play and it's not just all about microservices and lightweight application development or rolling out continuous improvement but uh, how you want to actually leverage you know the interaction between your developers and the it staff and i think that's where a lot of uh, Kubernetes implementations have gone wrong in the past because they basically have just involved the developers and not involved any of the uh, on-premise uh, IT staff or quite frankly, any of the security and IT departments in general. They've kind of just run, run, run by themselves, which has gotten them so far, but uh, as we get closer and closer to, you know, true wide-scale enterprise adoption of, of Kubernetes, those factors really come into play. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, Veeam has made significant investments into, uh, especially Kubernetes, with the uh, acquisition of Kasten. Um, so that container uh, application level data protection is is definitely available on the Veeam platform. Uh, pretty exciting uh, space, and it's kind of refreshing to get into a new technology like that, or, or new to. Uh, a number of us who are uh, maybe a little bit more towards what a traditionalist would be in IT. Uh, it it's always new and exciting to, it's always exciting to get into that new technology and, and almost relearn, um, especially with all of the scripting and development and, and stuff that goes on in there. It it's, uh, it's a cool new world. <laughs> it, absolutely. I, I think the first time I saw the CNCF, which is the Cloud Native uh, uh, Foundation, um, 
their, their big banner or their poster with all the partners. And I'm going, wow, there's like 800 different bits and <laughs> to a cloud native infrastructure. Wow. I, I, and, you know, when you've, you've heard a lot of the dominant ones like Rancher or Puppet and Chef and Jenkins and X and Y and Z, but there's hundreds and hundreds of other uh, parts of, of that uh puzzle really of, of building out a Kubernetes infrastructure that, uh, you know, I, I'm excited to watch what happens and see how this all gets uh, consolidated as we go down the, uh, basically go down the Kubernetes road with our customer sets and, and uh, the uh, industry in general. So looking forward to that. That's really uh, interesting. Yeah, sure. I just wanted I just wanted to touch on uh, the vExpert program. It's been a big week for uh, the vExpert program at VMware this week. Uh, we announced the 2021 um, uh, awardees, I guess, uh, 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 from from the nominations that uh, were submitted. I was lucky enough to uh, be uh, renominated for my second go round here in the vExpert program. And big news for Michael White is uh, he has now come back in. Uh, he decided last year not to. Uh, go through with the application process. And uh, uh, he found that actually he really enjoyed being part of that program. And uh, and some of the benefits is uh, that we do get some uh, NFR licenses for our home labs and whatnot out of that. But it uh, is a great, um, great community that gives back not just to the VMware community, but to the broader uh, virtualized community in general and the IT community in general. So uh, there's 2,100 members worldwide. I think there's about 135 in Canada, uh, roughly 800 in the US, and then uh, a large uh, footprint across the rest of the world as well. So uh, I'm excited to be part of the program for an, another year, and I look forward to giving back at places like uh, VMUGS, uh, at VMworld. Uh, I'm a speaker this this year at our worldwide sales kickoff, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to giving back to uh, the community in, in ways that I can, and this podcast is one of them, and uh, I really thank uh, guys like Michael White and all of the V experts before me who have really helped me in my career. And uh, I hope to become a mentor like them to lots of others and give back to the community. So just no, to... congratulations on that. And communities Thanks. like the expert are so important to uh, the technical community as a whole. Very often, like at, at Beam, we've got something called the Vanguard program, which is is very similar, albeit uh, quite a bit smaller. But it, it's it's really important to have the contributions from different programs like the Expert and all of the recipients of of the uh, designation. Their contribution to the community, as far as uh, reference architectures, white papers how-to guides, even just simple blog posts about functionality and, and giving others ideas about what to do in their data centers. They're, they're helping drive technology adoption. They're helping educate uh, newer people in the IT community or in the technical community. And without those contributions, uh, I, I know I've used a number of different uh, uh, experts guides uh, as far as home lab development or or just technology implementation for my for my job and different things like that it really fosters a community of, of uh, people that uh, basically help advance technology so uh, pretty cool program uh, congratulations to you michael and and everybody else that was selected again this year 
Oh, really appreciate that. And uh, we look forward to another great year of uh, giving back to the community. And uh, wanted to move on to any interesting tech notes that we, we found this week. Uh, the one that I, I found really exciting because uh, I've got an old, old MacBook that I'm thinking of replacing. And I've, I, I saw all the M1 uh, MacBook Airs and MacBook Pros and people have rushed out to buy those. But I've, I've been hearing some rumors about the MacBook 14 slash 16 upcoming refresh and uh, with the, you know, whether they call it an M1X or an M2, but it, it looks like it's going to have a ridiculous amount of cores. So as someone who does not just, you know, standardized computing, but I also do some video editing on the side. Uh, I'm involved in, in hockey. Uh, for a lot of people, I, I do. Uh, uh, I live stream uh, midget AAA female hockey games and uh, run the play-by-play -play as well. So uh, it, it'll be really, really interesting for me to get uh, a computer that's got a lot more horsepower and, and whatnot to deal with uh, video editing and, and audio editing as well. So looking forward to something like that. And uh, any thoughts on that as well for you? Part of the cool thing is like, I, I'm also going to be in the, in the market and have kind of been holding out to see what the, the new, I guess 2021 MacBook release is going to be, but um, really Mac in the last couple of years has started to, to change the game. I've never been one that's been kind of absolutely immersed into the platform. I've, I've had some, uh, some Mac products, my mobile uh, iPad and, and at some points, some laptops, but this is, to me, really game-changing. I mean, the battery life with the available processing power, uh, they're just taking it to an entirely new level. Um, dynamically being able, being able to allocate cores depending on power source and uh, different things like that, having, uh, I guess, some performance-based cores and some efficiency-based cores, really being able to customize your experience on the fly given whatever situation you might find yourself in. I'm not really going to miss that touch bar. I don't know about you, but um, if the rumor is correct and it's going away, eh, I can do without it. What do you think about that? You know what? I use the touch bar a lot, but whether it's there or not, I, you know, I use it for things like uh, where I found it actually the most useful was in Final Cut and scrubbing through um, being able to use my finger to scrub through uh, time in a in a video clip was was probably the most helpful thing but quite you know, i can do that with my touchpad just just well enough as well so i, I don't think i'll miss it if if the, that indeed does go away uh you know i think having function keys that are are static and are there are probably more important to me for for most people and and those functionalities i mean i use my volume up volume down and pause and whatnot on my keyboard just as much as i do on the touchpad so I would say, you know, whether it stays or goes, it, it won't be a, a big loss either way for me, so. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat, but the one, uh, the one area where I think the, this next generation is gonna be extremely exciting is, is potentially with the GPU, like looking at somewhere between 16 and 30 core GPU uh, or 32 core GPU in these models, as is rumored. <laughs> That's it, going to be something pretty cool. Well, uh, if you think about kind of where NVIDIA and, and AMD have kind of really dominated the graphics market uh, is in those really 
large scale, you know, 30, 90, 30, 80, 30, 70 type of time, you know, that, that are really kick-ass uh, video cards, but really are expensive and, and power hungry. And do I really need that to do my video editing? You know, probably not. You know, I'm not editing, you know, 15 streams of 4K content uh, simultaneously. If I did, then that's maybe when I would need something that had that kind of power. But I want something in my laptop that I can go out when I'm in the field shooting photos. If I want to do some video editing or photo editing on my laptop, I want it to be snappy. And and obviously the video card or the video functionality, the GPU functionality plays a huge function in that. And it, it's exciting to see how we're doing that on a low power basis now and providing you know, what I would call, you know, very high capability with very low power. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of innovation from not just from Apple, but from other, uh, what I would call um, uh, ARM-based processing. You know, every cell phone now seems to be able to support 8K, all of those sorts of things. So it's, it's quite exciting. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Processor technology comes to fruition over the next few years. Uh, Intel is a sleeping giant, and they've had their struggles with uh, manufacturing, getting their their you know their their scale down in their manufacturing. I think they're going to solve that. I think with Pat Gelsinger at the helm, they're going to really focus on what is going to make them successful and good and bring back that leadership. And I think competition drives that, right? Uh, you know, there wasn't much competition for Intel over the last 10 years. And uh, AMD really reared their head this last couple of years. Uh, Apple now entering the game, all the other ARM processors really have, have uh, leveled the field. And it's interesting to see. You know, and in fact, I'm running a, a Raspberry Pi with ESXi on it just to see what I could do. And it's amazing all the things that you can run on ESXi ARM that could be very, very helpful for, you know, a lot of different, uh, you know, I, I always think we, we're in Alberta, so the oil and gas industry is uh, quite high. I just think, you know, you could set a small Raspberry Pi ESXi ARM at a oil, you know, an oil and gas uh, field site, and all of a sudden you've got full capability of, of running a, a Linux data collection program. Uh, a lot of SCADA environments now can be run on something like that, where before they had to have a huge server in there. Now you have something low power, low cost, you can put them everywhere. So I think it's really going to drive a lot of IoT adoption as well. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I'm on the same page as you. I think bringing Pat Gelsinger into Intel is, is really going to reinvigorate them. Um, I think it's going to result in a, a lot more research, uh, R&D, basically get back on top. Uh, obviously, and Intel still has a, a, a massive amount of, of sales and uh, largely dominating, uh, especially the enterprise market still. Uh, but I think especially when it comes to personal computing and, and mobile computing, I, I think they're going to make a, a big push again. We haven't seen the last of them. Uh, it might take a little while before they're kind of getting caught up to where ARM is right now, but um, it's pretty exciting to see all the development that's that's going on. I mean, back in the day, it was about how how high can we get these frequency rates on these CPUs? And now it's, you know, at how can we get the most efficient uh CPU for power consumption and and battery life and different things like that. It's it's kind of neat how the industry's shifted away from uh, what it was like kind of in the early two thousands. 
Oh, absolutely. It's uh, It's been a phenomenal uh, industry to be a part of, and uh, it's always interesting to see kind of what the next generation is going to come out like. Uh, and I remember when the MacBook Pro 15-inch uh, uh, came out with the i9 processor, and I'm going, geez, I wonder how they're going to dissipate heat. And apparently it's uh, <laughs> through your lap. <laughs> That's how they did it, right? So uh, you can see why Apple did it, because they really wanted to control the thermals and the, and the battery life and all that. And, and moving off to their own chip really gave them that capability to do it. And you've seen it with Chromebooks, right? Chromebooks have been uh, a very good option for a lot of people. Uh, to really bring down the cost, but also bring up the battery life. I remember the first Google Pixel book that came out had like a 20-hour battery life, which was unheard of. And now that's more and more commonplace in the industry. So yeah, lots, of, lots of good stuff. Uh, let's move on. A, a couple of things, uh, you know, the polar vortex reaching all the way down into our good friends down in Texas. It's uh, amazing to see um, how power grids are, um, set up for specific geographies and and how they struggle when a rare event like a you know mi minus Fahrenheit hits some somewhere like uh, Dallas or or Austin or even Houston and ha how that electric grid tries to uh, survive when they're it it, it I was surprised me because you know in the middle of the summer when it's uh, you know 100 degrees they they have their their load peaking out with everybody's air conditioner running. I just can't imagine how they don't prepare for it with uh, with uh, electric baseboard heaters doing pretty much the same thing as the air conditioners do, but just at a different different stage. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, um, you get to the point, especially now with the power requirements, where they just, especially with the cold, the the houses aren't. Uh, aren't built to, to withstand that cold either so you kind of got a perfect storm going on right now where people are, are requiring power to just heat their house and and uh, stay warm without uh, needing a bunch of blankets and at the same time you're basically taking their power away in in portions um, just to be able to the to meet the demand for for everybody so um I just hope everyone's staying warm. I do have relatives down in, in Texas and, um, but it's a good lesson in, in preparation. I mean, you can take this uh, type of lesson from just, I mean, a general power grid and, and really apply it to anything. Uh, you've got to be ready. Heck, heck, we we had an earthquake in Banff, Alberta this week. So uh, you know, it it can happen anywhere. So you know, even in in a small mountain town in the middle of uh, in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, uh, they had a, a four point four magnitude earthquake that that shook everybody there pretty good. So. Uh, Again, preparations, that was the key. I know whenever we get into a big cold snap, I always make sure that we have lots of uh, stuff on hand and, and that all of our, uh, our, our essentials are, are in good working order so that just in case something like that does happen, we're, we're relatively prepared. Yeah, and hopefully, I mean, taking a technical look at this, hopefully everybody um, in Texas with data centers down there properly prepared as well with... Uh, extra power on hand, uh, be it battery, diesel, uh, you name it. Um, you betcha. You hope that there's a resiliency there or you've got the capability to move your workloads around uh, to other areas and, that aren't having problems. 
I, I think that's a real big function of, uh, you know, cloud computing these days in the hybrid cloud is the ability to shuffle the workloads in case of stuff like that, right? That's a whole another conversation wrapped around BC and DR. So we can definitely have a probably a full show based on, you know, why you might want to talk hybrid cloud and, and what that movement looks like in reality. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely something we, we will explore down the road. Um, the the uh, the other thing I saw a lot on Twitter this week was uh, Starlink starting to roll out uh, to to the masses. So you know, uh, for those of you who aren't aware what Starlink is, uh, all you have to do is look up at the night and watch the trains of satellites going off. Elon Musk and uh, and uh, his uh, SpaceX have been launching. Um, probably what 60 satellites at a time that are going to basically blanket coverage of the earth and internet high-speed internet coverage so a lot of folks who are out in the rural areas of uh, Canada and North America particularly are going to take real advantage of this I know uh, I've got a trailer in the middle of uh, the Columbia Valley in, in British Columbia and and if I luck out on my high speed, and I'm going to use that in air quotes, I top out at about six megabits per second, which is good for running, uh, you know, maybe a Zoom call, but that would be about it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting getting that because uh, the upside on that satellite connection is going to be absolutely huge. Um, some of the early returns aren't as fast, but uh, again, they haven't had a full satellite build out yet. Um, but still 79 megabits per second with you know 30 to 50 milliseconds of latency is is probably more than acceptable unless you're trying to you know win a call of duty league or something along those lines so uh <laughs> I, I i can't wait to try out the technology uh it's not going to be the cheapest thing in the world it's going to cost you probably 500 bucks to get in the door and then probably 100 bucks a month but uh the upside of it i've heard uh is going to be multi-gigabit uh internet uh, in both directions. So once they're at full build out, you're going to have the capability to have tremendous speeds coming off of, uh, you know, basically uh, anywhere that you bring your your uh, your receiver to. So I've, I'm looking forward to seeing what the the, res the results are. Uh, one of the drawbacks that I've seen on it is I take a lot of astrophotography and I've caught those trains in my shots a few times now. So it will be a little bit uh, aggravating for the hobbyists that are, are used to doing astrophotography or astronomy. Um, but really, you know, it's going to be a very predictable event uh, when they come across your screen. So, and, uh, you know, with today's technology, I can clone out those trains pretty, pretty easily. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I agree. This is definitely exciting, especially having uh, spent some time in the, uh, in the field for uh, oil and gas companies and really anywhere where there's remote uh, connectivity needs. I, I mean, you look at, uh, different situations with, I guess in Alberta, we're pretty fortunate because of the way the supernet was built out. Um, so there's there's a lot of connectivity available, but that's not always available to individual farms or, or uh, like, I guess field sites or, or batteries for oil and gas companies. I mean, I remember setting up a, a field site when we were at our oil and gas company, and uh, I remember we got quotes from the telecom provider to bring in a 56K ISDN line, and it was going to be $185,000. Yeah, as soon as you start running lines, it, it becomes extremely cost prohibitive, and, and, and that was a can't afford that. And the field site was about 100, maybe 150 meters from a existing telephone line. So, you know, it wasn't like they were going, you know, 
10 miles or something with wire, they were going 150 meters. So it, it can be pricey. And, and that when, when they're the only game in town, they got to choose, you know, charge whatever they want. So I think this is really going to uh, make things competitive in the telecom industry. And with so. being connected and having such, uh, I guess, being a critical part of life these days, and it's essential we, we provide that connectivity anywhere we can. And, and this is going to be a great way to provide that efficiently um, with pretty good performance. Like, like you said, once it's scaled out, we're going to see multi-gigabit up and down. Uh, basically, the sky's the limit uh, with, uh, with what you'll be able to do with that type of connectivity. So pretty neat to, to see it roll out. Hopefully it hits Canada soon. Uh, I know you're looking forward to being an uh, early adopter in it, and uh, I'm sure we'll provide a review once you've got it up and running. Absolutely. Uh, let's uh, move along into uh, Michael's uh, newsletter that he published on February 13th. Really uh, lots of links in here. Um, but a couple of things that I really wanted to call out um, was uh, there are some uh, new NSX T3 and 3.0 and 3.1 guides. Um, the article there uh, from basically from our VMware blogs, but uh, there's two reference guides and security reference guides that are in there. And I think anyone who's doing any multi-location design or any operational guides in NSX and NSXT particularly are gonna benefit from these design guides. I, I rifled through the, uh, the multi-location uh, design guide the other day, because I have a customer who is interested in knowing more about it. And uh, it gave me a lot of great information that uh, I didn't even know about, which, uh, comes across the table. Um, anything that you saw in there that really uh, uh, tickled your fancy in, in, in there as well? Um, as far as the, uh, the collection of links from Michael, one yeah. of the ones I, I took a note of was the uh, VMware Cloud DR solution. Um, using VMware Cloud for disaster recovery. I think very often what we're, what we're starting to see in the industry is, is the desire to use cloud native platforms for disaster recovery. But when you do that, there's inherent complexity there. And I think simplifying that solution and leveraging VMware in the cloud can be a much simpler way to implement disaster recovery without needing that secondary data center. Well, at the same time, maintaining the virtual machines integrity uh, within its native format. We can leverage a number of technologies to help facilitate that disaster recovery use case in that scenario. So I think uh, for me, that was a particularly uh, good, uh, good link. Also, the way for, for uh, well, one thing to note on that for those uh, of you who might not know where uh, the VMware uh, cloud disaster recovery product came from. We, we purchased a company called Datrium uh, in the middle of uh, 2020. And uh, the product that is now VMware cloud disaster recovery uh, kind of came out of that. A lot of interesting things. And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, maintaining that um, there's lots of backup and recovery to the cloud options, but typically they basically back up uh, to the cloud and then convert it over to a different type of a VM. And I always say, business recovery or business continuity and disaster recovery is a two-way street. You have to be able to say, when my disaster is over and I've, I want to recover back, I need to be able to do it easily. And I think this is one of those platforms that allows that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I took uh, away was the uh, 
the article on or the white paper on six ways application requirements drive your infrastructure decisions. I think uh, it's not a terribly long white paper, but um, it's got some good insights in there and, and basically goes over the modern thinking of, of infrastructure design uh, based on, on application requirements as opposed to uh, how do applications fit into the infrastructure as I want the infrastructure. I mean, over the course of the last few years, we've, we've started to see uh, data centers change from just a bunch of hardware that run applications into application driven decisions. And that's true of any hybrid cloud, any uh, cloud native, any uh, on-prem uh, type deployment is uh, having that focus uh, on the application level is, is quite important these days. It's like I said, it's more of a modernized way of thinking of your, of your data center. Um, but uh, that one kind of caught my attention as well. Yeah, the one other thing that caught my attention was uh, there's some new releases of security configuration guides from VMware as well. So Bob Plankers posted a, a, a very interesting uh, talk on why, why, why we changed a, a few things in there, but really anyone who has to follow PCI DSS, uh, DSA STIG or NERC compliance, we have configuration guides where you can actually follow the configuration guides to make sure that you're in compliance with whatever regulatory requirement that you have as well. And I think that plays a big factor into BCDR as well, so. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then uh, also a good link to uh, a PowerShell uh, kind of, uh, I guess, video that uh, uh, over the course of the years, I, I haven't been huge into scripting, but that's starting to change and come back. I guess the more you leverage cloud, uh, the more automation you're doing obviously requires some scripting. So uh, I know PowerShell APIs are, are increasing basically with, with every software provider as our REST API and different things like that. But um, having a PowerShell cheat sheet to connect to Azure, Azure AD, Exchange Teams, all of those uh, great platforms make life so much easier. Um, since I've started getting into that PowerShell scripting, it, it just, it makes uh, setup and configuration uh, more simple. It makes it more portable. Um, you can, I work with a number of customers where we may have to run a configuration on something. And if it's, if it's repeatable and I can take that PowerShell from customer to customer, it just helps create efficiency. And you can do that within your own business as well. Uh, PowerShell is a tremendous tool uh, and the integration points with it are, are uh, I would say second to none in kind of an, a, an infrastructure and scripture language because uh, you know, when you think about doing various repetitive tasks, there's nothing like a good script to blast through it. Uh, I, a couple of years ago, I was involved in the hands-on lab and I actually did our uh, vSphere PowerCLI uh, lab as well. So got a little bit of experience with PowerShell and, and PowerCLI specifically, but it's uh, it's tremendous what you can do with it. And just, uh, you know, if you, if you want to 
if you ever want to look at, you know, kind of the power of it, you could even log into the hands-on labs and, and watch any lab. We actually have a lab startup strip script that actually goes to make sure everything starts up correctly. And, and it's quite a complex script that goes out, checks a whole bunch of uh, DNS entries, pings, XYZ, URL checkers. And we use a whole bunch of PowerCLI capabilities or PowerShell capabilities in the background to do all that. And the end result of it is just to make sure that, you know, the experience to your end user is, is great. And so, you know, it's not just about, you know, automating maybe, you know, attaching a, a LUN to 20 ESXi servers. It might be, you know, hey, we can do this with a whole bunch of uh, programmatic languages as well. So lots of interesting stuff in there. Yeah, very, very powerful. Um, for me, that uh, that about covers off um, the... the uh, the one last thing that I saw on there was there was a really good article on how to give presentation and demonstrate applications in Zoom, right? So for those of you who are in the, you know, what I call the pre-sales arena, like uh, Josh and I are, we live and die by, you know, giving presentations. Uh, and it's important to know how to demonstrate your application, but it's also important to know how to switch effectively between the various modes of, of what I call presenting, whether that's uh, doing a whiteboard, whether that's uh, doing slides or slides and notes, or if you're trying to demo an application itself, you know, how do you do that effectively and, and do it uh, in a way that you can have what I call uh, the inevitable failure of a demo and how do you make that graceful to maybe go over to a backup of that application or maybe uh, swing over to something else, right? So really great article about that, uh, you know, because it, it can really feel like juggling cats while you're trying to give a presentation uh, while you're manning all the Zoom things that you need to do in the background to make sure everything's going smoothly. So uh, good people make it look really, really easy. Uh, it, it's not as easy as it looks, but there's a, a whole bunch of good things. And this article on uh, Tidbits by Glenn Fleischman was, was a, I thought, really, really a good way to uh, show off how you can utilize the power of uh, any of those presentations, whether it's Zoom or something else. Uh, this one specifically does Zoom, but it's a, a great article if you do any of that sort of work, or even if you are an IT professional and need to give a presentation to your boss. And you know, in COVID days, we got to do it via Zoom. This is a great way for you to you know bone up on how you can give a a really good presentation. And even if you are good at presenting and, and running demos, it's one of those things where you can never overlearn. It can never be absolutely perfect 100% of the time. So it's something that uh, you're definitely right. It's valuable. It's something like if you're serious about advancing your career in pre-sales or uh, just in public speaking in general, constant improvement is, is always required. So anything, any tips or tricks that you can pick up from uh, an article like this that help make you better or more efficient or uh, smoother in delivering your content, then uh, it's, it's absolutely extremely valuable. Well, with that, I think we can uh, wrap it up for today. I really appreciate uh, you joining the program, Josh. We look forward to having many more of these. If anyone would like to guest host, we do have a Twitter account. Uh, Notes from M. White uh, is the Twitter account. Please DM us on that account and we will... Uh, uh, be happy to have you as a guest host and uh, talk about technology issues of the day and uh, any of the notes in the V community that we have from Michael over his newsletters. We look forward to having Michael in the program uh, sporadically uh, as his health allows, and we wish him all the best in uh, in 
dealing with his ALS and uh, we're here to support him in any way we can. With that, we'll wrap up uh, episode number four. And uh, any last thoughts, Josh, before we uh, close off? No, thank you very much again for, for having me. Um, looking forward to being part of this, uh, sending, my, uh, sending my well wishes to Michael and the rest of the community. Um, stay well. Uh, and, and again, uh, have a look at uh, Josh's lab equipment if you want to make a donation uh, or uh, you want to find some uh, good lab equipment that still has some life left in it. Please have a look at that. Yeah, and you can find the list on it's uh, a website called The Cloud A. Uh, it's uh, a little take on uh, the Canadian A. <laughs> so The Cloud E-H dot com is the website and there's an entire equipment list there'll be some equipment from calgary some from edmonton uh where we may even see some stuff from uh from out east uh right now it's per predominantly uh just a few v messies that have come together to uh put this equipment list together but uh, even if you've got something uh, out in the community that you want to add to this initiative, uh, please feel free to reach out. Happy to help in any way we can. Uh, we'll get the message out to all the V experts as well. Uh, and really thank you for your participation. And uh, thanks to Michael White again for his regular contributions with his uh, newsletter. And we'll look forward to talking to everybody next week. With that, we'll sign off and hope everybody has a great week. Thank you.